it's great to be together to worship, to gather. We're going to take some time in God's Word. Before I read our text for the day, just want to give you a little update. This past week, uh, Tim Owens uh, passed his third ordination exam this week. He's doing a great job, and so the real heavy lifting of all his study and preparation is somewhat behind him. Uh, we'll give you some more details about this at the, at the member meeting coming up on March 5th because we actually have a very important part for you as members to play in his ordination, and so we'll be giving you a little bit more detail about that. But uh, he's making great progress, passing exams with flying colors, and uh, he has a very intimidating exam coming up middle of March where he has to sit in front of a panel of very intimidating people and answer questions in person. So looking forward to that. Uh, but like I said, March 5, we'll give you a little bit more detail about that. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you have a Bible a app on your phone, the text will be up on the screen. Uh, let me just read. We're going to read the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's pray, and we'll charge in for what the Lord has for us this afternoon. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been burned by fire? And the king said to me, so what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king... Let letters be given to me, to, uh, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Would you pray with me? Father, this text that we just read is about an event that took place in history, but we know that it was taking place because you ordained it, planned it, desired it. This was part of your big, wonderful plan to redeem. You work, you worked, you acted, you performed you were present you were speaking and you preserved it for us to read and to look at and to learn and so pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might know you more so we might we might see you and your glory in this account in this event and what's taking place here so encourage and strengthen the church today 
that we would leave with our faith encouraged and strengthened, that our hope in you, our trust in you, our joy in you would be more, more than when we came in with for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust that most of you, if not all of you in the room, love to see God at work. It's a great, amazing thing when God does things, when he works, when he acts, when he performs things. And most of us and all of you that I know love it when he does. I don't doubt that many of us sitting in the room right now, if I were to ask you, how do you want to see God work in your life, could immediately pull up a list of some things. You've got something going on in your life right now. I would love to see God work in this way. I need him in this way. There's a need in my life in this area, a relational breakthrough, a new career, a financial breakthrough, the end of a long and difficult trial, clarity about a major decision that you might be facing presently, a desire for depression to lift, fear to go away, boredom to be replaced with something fulfilling. And by God's grace, may he do it. Whatever it is on your heart, whatever you're seeking God for this afternoon in this season of your life, may he bless you with it. But when we find ourselves in situations where we need something, want something from God, we can't really help ask the question, how? How is this going to happen? Sometimes we go as far as say, what could I possibly do in order to get God to do what I'm asking. How does God act? How does he move? How does he get things done? How do we participate in God getting things done? Do we pray a certain way at a certain time? Do we need to act a certain way, be, be good, be especially nice to people in this season so that God will see and maybe grant my request? What I want to do and what our study does through this section of the Bible, rather than focusing on how to get God to do what you want him to do, and I'm not trying to imply that that is always necessarily a bad thing, what I am saying is that the Bible leads us to a little bit different approach. How do we become a part of what God is doing, which is church building? title of our series going through Ezra and Nehemiah church building it's what God is doing he is building his people his church the plan of God to gather people from every people who know the Lord who are his people and what we want to do as a church what we want to be our aim is that we want to be all about doing God's will but we want to be all about doing God's will God's way both are important what does he call us to do? How does he call us to do it? The question is still there. How? How does he get it done? How does God get things done? That's the question I want to try and answer this afternoon. How does God get things done? The church is God's work, but also we, the church, do God's work. How? How does it happen? Now, Nehemiah is a character in the Bible, a man. He is one of the great get-it-done kind of guys. He's one of the great accomplishers of the Bible. We could list many, but Moses, Nehemiah, the Apostle Paul, 
these men in the Bible accomplished unusually great things for God. Like high energy people getting all kinds of things done. And it's amazing to look at and read about and ponder and think about. And I would like for all of us to capture a little bit of some advice from William Carey, uh, a yesteryear missionary who said, expect great things and attempt great things. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. In Nehemiah chapter 2, I'm pulling out after studying this, these eight verses, some answers to the question how God gets things done. And the points are going to land like this. First, he begins in our hearts. Secondly, he's with us when we step out. And thirdly, he ultimately gets things done by his own good hand. Okay, the first point, it begins in our hearts. It all began in Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's heart as we looked at chapter 1 last week. God put it in Nehemiah's heart, a, an extreme love for the people of Israel. We're going to refer to them as God's people. We're going to see that forward as the church. So the people of God in the Old Testament are seen as the nation of Israel. So in the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel, and they take on a political, national, locational kind of identity, and this transfers forward into the New Testament where we have the church, which those aspects are cast off, and now we have a people expanded from every people. But so many principles are the same as we've been tracking through. Nehemiah has an unusual passion, compassion, concern for the people of God. Now, they were very far away from him. He had never met them. He had no personal contact with them. He's a, he's a thousand miles away. He had grown up in Babylon, Assyria. He's, he has no personal connection except for the fact that those are the people of God, and I'm one of them. He hears that they're in trouble. Nehemiah was not affected by this. Nehemiah had a high position in the court of the king. He was the cupbearer to the king. Let's assume he had a good life. He had a good paycheck. He had a good position. He was a person of standing in Persia. And he hears that the people of God a thousand miles away are in trouble and the city is laid waste. And the, the walls are torn down. The gates have been burned with fire, and it breaks him. It crushes him. It brings him to his knees. He is just lost before God in despair over the trouble that the people of God are in. And that is what kicks off the mission. This is how things get started. This man had something personal inside his heart that God had put there. God began the process in this story by doing something in that man's heart. And as we read the account in the beginning of chapter 2, he couldn't hide it. He couldn't hide it. He gets into the company of the king. Now, you understand it was his job to hide it. 
Okay, you can't be the cupbearer to the king. It's not like some of us, you, know, you get up, you go to work, you say, oh, I'm in a really bad mood today. Well, I really didn't feel like coming to work today. Nehemiah could not do that. You cannot be the cupbearer to the king and walk up into the king's presence with a long face and say you're in a bad mood or you didn't feel like working today. That was not his job. His high office came with strict protocols. Here, Nehemiah's job descriptions. Besides the ability and willingness to either get sick or die from poison, here's some of his job description requirements. He had to possess extreme poise and decorum. He had to be an excellent communicator. And he had to especially know when to keep his mouth shut. He needed to remain calm in every circumstance, able to remain pleasant in the presence of the king at all times, and never to draw undue attention to himself or express personal feelings in the presence of the king. That's how he got schooled. You want to do this job? Here's who you have to be. Here's how you need to act. Here's how you need to behave. So he said it in our text. Now, I've never been sad in the presence of the king. I was doing my job well. But now he comes to a day. The work of God's spirit in his heart could not be hidden. It came out. What was in his heart ended up on his face. What was on his face ended up in his mouth. God began to work inside him, and there was no stopping it. When God puts something in your heart, there's something unstoppable about that work of God's Spirit in your heart, and your face will show it, and your mouth will speak of it. So the king noticed. Why is your face sad? I see that you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart, he says. Another translation translates it as three questions. Why are you so depressed? Are you unwell? If not, it seems that you're sad of heart. Nehemiah, you've been in my presence every day. You check the food. You check the wine for me. You've always been cheerful. You've always been constant. Something's different. I can see it on your face. I can see it in your eyes. We all try to hide our feelings in differing ways, and some of us do a pretty good job of it. And I suppose on one level it's good and wise that we don't go through life wearing every feeling on our sleeves everywhere we go. But the point here is that when God puts something on your heart, you can't hide it. You shouldn't hide it. This is how he begins his work through us. This is how God begins to get things done. He puts things in the hearts of his people. He deposits something there, something that is not meant to be hidden, something that is meant to stir and to grow and come out in our countenance and come out of our mouths, something unstoppable that God has done in our hearts and is unfitting and as dangerous as it was for Nehemiah to express what God was doing in his heart, that's exactly what he did because that's exactly how God begins to get things done. Friends, this is how the gospel of the, uh, the power of the gospel works in us. This is the promise of the gospel. The gospel comes to us and changes us from the inside out. It is a deposit of God's grace in our hearts, inside of the core of our very being. It's like a seed planted there that begins to spring up and produce fruit. 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, the Lord promises in Ezekiel 36. I remember when I first became a Christian, early in life some 50 years ago, how much everything seemed so different all of the sudden. It was the same person from one day to the next, but a change took place in my heart, and all of a sudden, the world looked different. I wasn't the same person. Things had become new. Now I had new desires. Now I had new priorities. Now I had new standards. Now I had new values. I had to reorient to my world completely because something had begun inside my own heart. Now, for Nehemiah, in the account that we're reading, it was a sadness at first. He was sad over the trouble that the people of God were in. For us as Christians, it's hope. It's joy. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see the logic that's happening here? God does a work in your heart, and you're just going about your life, and here, I'm predicting what's going to happen. Somebody's going to say, what is it about you? What's happened to you? What's going on? Not, oh, why are you so depressed? It's like, um, why are you so hopeful? Why are you so joyful? What's going on? I can see on your face. I can see the way you respond. I can see the way you make decisions, the way you spend your money, the way you govern your life. I can tell there's something about you. Why? What is it? Tell me about it. And that's precisely what Peter is encouraging us to be ready and prepared. Oh, if God doesn't work in your heart, just a heads up. Somebody's going to be asking you some questions. Should be asking you some questions. Unless you're really good at hiding it, but you're not supposed to hide this. It's supposed to come out. It's supposed to be on your face. It's supposed to be on your countenance. It's supposed to be in your mouth. And then people start asking. And you start telling. And then the work begins. So how does God get things done? It starts inside you. It starts in your heart. He does something And it's unstoppable. Secondly, he's with us when we step out. He begins a work in our heart. And secondly, he is with us when we step out. We talked about prayer last Sunday, the chapter one. When Nehemiah hears this news, he drops down into a a season of prayer, seeking God, crying out to God, confessing sins, pleading with God. And he does this for about four months. It was an extremely important season for Nehemiah, this get-it-done kind of guy, to go through. Like a a baby in the womb, the burden needed time to gestate, to mature, to grow, to take shape, to form the details, to become ready for life, ready for action. This man spends about four months Four months to hear from God. Four months to process this through his heart. Four months to gain perspective. Four months to gain clarity. What's going on? Four months to strengthen his faith. 
Four months to subdue any ungodly ambition in his heart. Four months to realize how to do God's work, God's way. Patiently. Time with God. Listening. Waiting. But when it was time to step out, he steps out. The day has come. He's in the presence of the king. It's on his face. It's planned. It's there. The king calls him out. What's going wrong? What's on your mind? What do you want? And did you catch it? He said, I was terrified. I was terrified about this moment. I knew I had to do it. I couldn't stop it from happening. I knew this was supposed to happen. But what a tenuous, scary moment. What's going to happen? I have no idea how the king's going to respond. This is against protocol. This is against the rules. I'm not supposed to do this. I have to do it. Here goes. And the king saw it. He says, I was afraid, and so I prayed. Okay. When it was time to step out, he still prayed. He spent four months praying. Here's the point. You should spend four months praying. When you're done spending four months praying and you step up and you go into action, you still need to pray. You still need to call out to God. Okay, it's not like go seek God, get it right, get it figured out, and then go. And God will stay here and send you out and you'll be alone. In the moment, in the moment, he cries out to God. So just because he was prayed up before the meeting doesn't mean he was alone in the meeting. And he knew he could call out to God. A great lesson in just the versatility and usefulness of prayer. Sometimes prayer happens in seasons, extended time, sometimes through the night. Sometimes it's organized, sometimes it's corporate, sometimes it's private, sometimes it's planned out, sometimes it's written out, sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's spontaneous. And then there are those oftentimes quick, maybe even unspoken cries of the heart in the moment, oh sweet Jesus, I need you now. It is not likely that he got in this conversation with the king and said, oh, excuse me, king Artaxerxes, could we just pause a minute while I go pray for a while? Hold that thought. Uh, let me get back with you. It's more likely he's face to face with the king and he's shooting up a prayer, <laughs> maybe unspoken. Oh, God, I need you now. He cries out to God in the moment and God is present and God meets him. God is with us in the work. How does God get things done? He stays with us when we go. God sends us, but stays with us. He doesn't send us and send us away. He sends us and goes with us. He's present with us. We can trust the nearness and the availability of God in the work. This is why we can expect great things and attempt great things. Because the Lord is is near. He's present. This is why we can cast off fear in some of the most difficult situations, because he's with us. Have you noticed how blunt and sometimes feels like almost crass God is when he talks about fear? He just keeps saying, don't be afraid. Now, if you ever experienced fear, that's like lousy advice, isn't it? Just don't be afraid. But he qualifies it. 
son, daughter, don't be afraid because I'm with you. That's why I can say, don't be afraid. Here's a really good reason you do not need to be afraid because I am with you. Now that makes a difference. Telling somebody who's afraid to stop being afraid doesn't make a lot of sense. Telling somebody who's afraid that you're with them, that makes a difference. And these are the promises of God. Call upon me and I will answer you. I am a very present help in times of trouble. He remains with us in the work, the task, even the waiting, the in-between time, the downtime, the setbacks, the failures, the successes. He's there. He's present. He's available. We're not alone. Thirdly, how does God get things done? By his own good hand. So once the king opens the door, opens the door, I mean, by asking the question, what are you asking for? Here, Nehemiah really begins to shine. He was a remarkable man of remarkable talents and giftings. And we begin to see it here. So the king says, okay, so the shock is gone. The terror of the moment, uh, the king didn't throw him out, didn't have his head chopped off. You know, it was like, what do you want? What are you asking for? Well, in a moment, you realize Nehemiah was ready. He had a plan. He had it figured out. I mean, you talk about some gifts of administration and faith and planning. This guy had it. The, all the king had to do was say, what do you want? Well, it just so happens that I was spending four months with the Lord, and I happened to know precisely what I want. Here's what I'm asking. Send me to Judah so I can rebuild it. In other words, appoint me governor of Judah and I will go rebuild the city. I'd like you to give me letters of permission for safe passage because there's all kinds of trouble along the way. Oh, I'd also like you to give me letters that qualify me for su the supplies that I need to build the wall and the structures and the gates and everything. And oh, by the way, I'll, I'll need you to pay for my housing. I'll need a house to stay in as well. That's what I want. Here's, here's my list. Okay. Okay, try this on your next job interview, okay? You go in for the, the job interview and just set the person down and, and just start the conversation. Don't wait for any questions. Just go ahead. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to appoint me head of the entire department. And here's my salary figure. And here's the budget that I want you to give my department Oh, and I'd like you to put it in writing that all the other departments are going to do exactly what I say and what I need for my department, okay? Oh, oh, one last thing. I need a house, and I'd like you to make it a nice one, okay? Over 2,000 square feet with a backyard would be just fine, so pay for my housing. There it is. Well, okay, I know some of you have really impressive resumes, and you probably could do that, and that job interview might not be too dissimilar to what some of you do, but, but the rest of us... We just say, uh, <laughs> could I have a job, please? And I can do it out and sweep the floor, wash the car. And, uh, but Nehemiah, he's in the presence of the king. He's intimidated. He's fearful. But the Lord is with him. God's put something on his heart. He's been praying about this for a long time. And the king says, what do you want? And out comes the plan. 
all thought through. He had an unusual gift of planning, faith, administration, and also wisdom. In the text that we read, there's some sort of unexplained, unqualified details. Now, whenever that happens, the commentators just start having lots of fun speculating about what this means or what that means. Here's some things that they kind of bring up in this brief account. He never mentions the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't mention Jerusalem by name. Now you need to understand, this is the king that ordered the cease and desist of building Jerusalem before. Do you start to begin to piece together the tension that Nehemiah must have been feeling? He's going to the king that stopped the work some years prior. And the reason he was stopping the work was because the people around said, Jerusalem is a bad city. Go ahead, look it up. You'll find out that Jerusalem as a city was a rebellious city and caused you lots of trouble. And if you go back to early in Ezra, that's what the king said. Well, why should the king have trouble with this city? Stop the work immediately. Now, Nehemiah is asking that order to be reversed. He does not mention Jerusalem by name. He actually makes it personal. I'm grieved. My people, my place, it's in ruins. Our identity, our security. It's not talking at all in terms that would trigger the king from thinking this is going to become a threat to me. He's thinking in terms of Nehemiah personally and the grief that he's experiencing. Nehemiah writes us and he mentions that the queen was present. We have no idea why. But he felt the need to mention it without explaining. Some, for some reason, that was important and possibly helped create the opportunity. Maybe she had a softening effect on the king. He was calmer when she was around. He was less liable to chop people's heads off when she was sitting next to him. That's possible. Maybe she had a real tender spot for Nehemiah and whispered in his ear and caused him to have a more, a better favorable response. It could be, if we begin to understand the history, that Artaxerxes had some trouble with some other nations down there that were causing some rebellion. And the timing could have been precise in the sense of, oh, king, you really could use a good ally down in the beyond the river place. And so if you fund this campaign to rebuild Jerusalem, you're going to have friends down there, which currently you're not having too many friends down there. So that could have been part of his thinking as, as well. Also, there's a sense of asking big, showing honor to the king. Like there's a way of honoring the king by asking big. This king, I mean, kings are like that. They don't want to be a part of your small, little, piddly project. You're going to do something big. You're going to do something grand. The king might get on board with that. And Nehemiah comes in and he asks, Big. This is going to be a big project. 
you put your name on this, there's, there's going to be some glory in this. I've got this thought through. I've got the plans. Here are the blueprints. Here's the supply list. Here's, here's what I need. I've thought this through. This is going to be a success, and it's going to be big. And something like this would appeal to a king. Oh, we're going to head down. We're going to see if we can gather up some stones. Maybe we'll get half a wall built or something. I'm not sure it's going to go that well, but we thought we'd give it a try. Is it okay with you if you fund this project? I'm not really interested in this project. This doesn't appeal to me. But Nehemiah says, I've got something big in mind. This is going to be big. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be strong. It's going to be powerful. And he got the king's attention. Okay. Nehemiah is shining here, and we'll see more about this man. But Nehemiah's greatest wisdom was, recogni was recognizing why the king said yes. As good as Nehemiah is beginning to look, and as admirable as he is in our eyes, what is most admirable about Nehemiah is that when the king says yes, he knows exactly why the king said yes. And it was not because of Nehemiah's detailed planning. It was not because of his carefully thought out presentation of his plans. It wasn't because of his impeccable timing. It wasn't because King Artaxerxes was such a great, magnanimous, generous king. When the decision landed and the answer was yes, Nehemiah knew immediately it was because the good hand of my God was upon me. It was the Lord that brought it about. Now we see the absolute best quality of Nehemiah. He knew the Lord, and he knew the Lord was sovereign. He knew if he was going to have success, it would be for one reason, one reason alone. The Lord was with him. This is the Lord who's over all the nations. Derek Kidner writes, the decisive factor, as he recognized, was not his faith, but the object of it. The God who was his God, whose good and gracious hand was upon him. How does God really get things done? How does God work through you and through me and through his church and through kings and princes? How does he get things done? Ultimately, for one reason, it's his good, sovereign hand that gets the job done. This is the most important thing, really one of the most important things for us to learn in our study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is God's hand at work over pagan kings in spite of Israel's failures, over gifted leaders, over ungodly opposition, in it all, through it all, God is the one, by his own mighty hand, by his good mighty hand, he is redeeming a people. God is the one who's absolutely committed to it. He is the one who is absolutely able to get it done. And he uses everything and all things for his good purposes. I, I don't know of anything that centers us as well 
and equips us as well as coming to terms with this sovereignty of God, with his ability to rule rulers, with the clarity of understanding that no matter who's in charge or how high up they are or how powerful they are, that it is all from highest to lowest under the sovereign providential hands of God. He is over it all. He is able to work it all for his good, for his glory, for his plans, for his purposes. This fact, this reality that Nehemiah lands on at the end of this paragraph in this book, it encourages us to be a part of what God is doing. It's his work. He's going to get it done. Why should we keep building this church? Why should we reach out to new people? Why should we seek to expand? Why should we have community groups? Why should we keep doing what we're doing? It's because it's God's work and he's able to accomplish it. Is it because we're so wise and crafty and skilled and, and, and gifted? No, it's because we're, we're getting a part of what God is doing. We're understanding what God's plan is and we're getting in on a part of it and we're doing it trusting that if this thing works and it will work because it is his plan because he's going to make it work, then that's what we want to be a part of and give ourselves to frees us to participate without boasting or any sense of wrong self-reliance. It will be for his glory. God will do it. God can do it. He will do it. It enables us to overcome fear. He's with us. He'll see us through. It takes undue pressure away from decision-making. Should we go this way or should we go that way? Should we do this? Should we hire that? Should we go here? Should we what? How should we build? What this? All these decisions. We talk through all these decisions week by week, month by month. What's the direction? What's the mind of the Lord? And how easily it would be to get paralyzed under fear. But if we do this, it'll all go up in smoke. If we go the wrong way, if we make the wrong decision, Who's going to leave? Who's going to be upset? What's going to happen? Will it be successful? Will anybody come? Will anybody respond? Will it be fruitful at all? Where does the hope come from? Where does the confidence come from? We are such skilled decision makers. No, it's the good hand of the Lord that's doing this. I've already made all the wrong decisions. I've proven to you that I could make wrong decisions, and the Lord is still building his church. It takes the, the fear and the undue pressure out of it. We go forward trusting the Lord. We seek the Lord. Lord, what do you have for us? What, what's next? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to be a part of what God is doing. We're going to build his church because that's what he's doing. We're getting in on his plan and participating and doing God's will, God's way, why? Because Ron's will, Ron's way, is not going the same direction and doesn't have the same promise of getting the same results. But what God is doing, we know what he's doing. And we know where it's going. And we know it will be successful. And we know the outcome. And so we want to kind of get in on that train.
best of all, maybe most importantly, it turns us into proper worshipers in doing God's will. What's, what are some of the most distasteful things you hear about the church? Isn't it self-serving leaders? Does that not turn your stomach when it hits the news? This plan that God is doing eliminates boasting, eliminates self-reliance, and he does it in such a way that while he uses you and uses me and uses us together corporately, it all ends up coming about in such a way that we all have to just kind of stand back at some point and say, it's the Lord did it. It's the Lord that did it. And we, we get shaped into worshipers as God gets the glory for what he does through you, through me, through us, through other churches, through his people, all over the globe, he's building his church. And when it's all said and done, we all have to stop and just say, amazing what the Lord did. And amazed that we could have a part to play in it. Well, worship team, you can come on up in closing. What's God doing? Jesus said it. Talking with Peter. I'm building my church. It's what I'm doing. That's the plan. It's what I'm about. It's what I want you to be about. It's what we all need to realize. It's what we all need to realize and what we all need to be about. It's what God is committed to and what he calls us to be a part of. It's how you and I can actually invest ourselves into something that is most important. It's for the souls of men, women, and children. It's for people of all nations. It's a project for eternity. This, what we're building, what we're a part of, what God is building, what we get to be a part of, it is a thing that will survive the judgment day. You understand? What we're doing is being a part of God forming something that's going to survive the judgment day and come out positively on the other side. In other words, what we're doing is eternal. It's not temporal. It's not just for this life, okay? So we're not building something that is necessarily going to, on this day or that day, appear impressive in this life. What we're trying to do is build something so that you are ready to face the Lord. I am ready to face the Lord. We will stand together before the Lord and we will go through that judgment day shining and into eternity and be able in this joyful existence of communion with God forever. That's the long game. It's what we're after. That's what we're looking for. And how does God get it done? How's he going to get that done? Well, it's going to start in your heart. It's going to put something in your heart. It's going to awaken your heart 
to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. See your sins on his shoulders on the cross. See your new life in his resurrected body coming out of that tomb. You're going to look around in this room and it's going to be, ah, my family, my new adopted family, my brothers and sisters. He's going to put something in your heart that's going to begin the work in you and bringing you into the plan that he has. And when he does that and you begin to step out, he's going to be with you when you step out. You won't be alone. And in the end, when it's accomplished, when it's done, when you see God meeting you, when you see him answering prayers, we're all going to sit back and say, it was by the good hand of our God. He was with us. He did it. Let's stand.